0: Hello, and welcome to the podcast for the journal Integrated Environmental Assessment and Management, better known as IEAM. I'm Jenny Shaw. The July 2014 issue of IEAM contains a critical review that discusses the role of biomarkers in the assessment of aquatic ecosystem health. The authors of the paper are Sharon Hook, Evan Gallagher, and Graham Batley. With us today is lead author Sharon Hook. Sharon is a senior research scientist with the CSIRO in Australia, also known as CSIRO, and she's at the Center for Environmental Contaminants Research. Hi, Sharon. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Jenny, for having me. So
1: what exactly are biomarkers? Biomarkers, as they're used in ecotoxicology, are a measurable change in a physiological endpoint. Um, example that makes a lot of sense to people is when you go to the doctor and you, they want to check your arteries, they measure the cholesterol in your blood. So it's something that they can measure that's a proxy for something else. There are different types of biomarkers. One common example is exposure biomarkers. The classic exposure biomarker would be the in juvenile or male fish. The is a yolk protein and is normally produced by females making eggs. If you go out and you measure this in a male or in a juvenile, they shouldn't be making eggs, so it's an indication that they're being exposed to an environmental estrogen. Another common exposure biomarker is cytochrome P450 1A or CYP1A or EROD. These are often upregulated in animals that have been exposed to planar hydrocarbons. So if you go out and you measure elevated uh, CYP. That tells you that this organism is seen either PCB or, or some PAHs. What these biomarkers don't tell you, however, is what effects these are having on the organism health. In that case, you would use an effects biomarker. Examples of these would be changes in circulating steroid levels, changes in oxidative stress, or changes in DNA damage. These are better to link to fitness but they don't necessarily tell you which contaminant is causing this effect or even that it is a contaminant causing the effect. For example, a discharge from a power plant that has really hot water can cause some of these impacts as well. The third type of biomarker that we talk about in the paper are these emerging omics biomarkers where somebody has gone out and measured all of the changes in either gene expression, active proteins or metabolites. And these definitely need to be ground truthed with either elevated contaminant body burdens or some sort of other physiological change, but they have the benefit of being able to measure all of the pathways that are being altered in an organism at one time. This is especially important for contaminants that we don't know a lot about, such as these emerging contaminants or contaminant mixtures. What we argue in the paper is that biomarkers are most effective when you integrate all three of these. So, For example, you go out and you measure CYP1A, oxidative stress and changes in gene expression and by putting these together, you get an idea of what's causing the effects, what the effects are and what the relative pathways are. This gives you a much better indication of what changes you're going to see in organism health and fitness.
0: So then going back to something you mentioned real quickly in your previous answer, these biomarkers are really physiologically specific. So how do you actually ground truth the biomarkers being proposed for assessing organism health?
1: That's a really important question, Jenny. In a perfect world where both time and funding were limitless, what you would do is you would go out into the field and you'd go to a pristine site And of course, since this is a perfect world, there are lots of pristine sites and they're really close to your lab. And you would measure these physiological changes in organisms that are unexposed across a time period. So you get an idea of how they change with season and reproductive status, so on and so forth. The other thing you would do is you would do a controlled laboratory exposure where you probably have a hypothesis as to what's causing your problem, you would go into the lab and you would expose your organism to that contaminant so you get an idea of how these markers would change when the organism is exposed. Now, I work in the real world and both funding and time are limited. So often we can't go out and ground truth our biomarkers before we start our experiment, but... The good news is is that biomarkers have been studied for upwards of 30 years and there's lots of literature studies about what happens in normal situations to these biomarkers and also how they've responded in other people's studies. So in an ideal world, you'd go out and you'd ground truth the biomarkers in controlled laboratory exposures and in pristine field sites before you start the experiment. But if you don't have time and money to do that, if it's logistically not feasible, you can rely on the studies that are already in the literature to do this.
0: And I think you cover several of these existing studies and the the history of these, how the biomarkers got established in your paper. Yes, we've tried to. So your paper talks about biomarkers as a line of evidence in a weight of evidence approach. How would this improve ecological risk assessments?
1: Biomarkers in and of themselves wouldn't necessarily be terribly strong, but when used as a weight of evidence approach, so they're used with something else, they really can strengthen risk assessment because in most environments, contaminant levels are not high enough to outright kill the organism, but you don't have to kill the organism outright to have it disappear from the population. You just need to change its fitness so it's not doing as well compared to other organisms that may be present. So what we would argue that should be done is that biomarkers should be used along with population level metrics. So you've gone out and you've done your community assessment and you've also measured which contaminants and which stressors are present in the system. By going out and using biomarkers, you can use this to link changes in contaminant levels with changes in fitness and hypothesize how that's going to make the organism's population change over the long term.
0: So it sounds like biomarkers are considered by just a few regulatory agencies right now. What do you think it'll take for biomarkers to be more widely adopted?
1: Well, I think that biomarkers are going to be more widely adopted by regulatory agencies, especially for use in situations where we have low levels of contaminants, but yet we're seeing changes in populations. I also think that these are going to be more adopted as we start to move away from whole animal testing as is being done in Europe. But before they're really adopted by regulatory agencies, we need to improve the connections with physiology and with population level effects. We also need to get people more comfortable using this sort of data. This is especially important for those of us who do omics research. But as a weight of evidence approach is being taken up where people are are using more diverse and more complete data packages we're going to want to use all of the science we can to establish what's causing effects to populations. So I definitely see us incorporating biomarkers more often.
0: All right, Sharon. Well, thank you so
1: much for chatting with us today. Well, thank you for your interest in our work.
0: You've been listening to Sharon Hook discuss her article, The Role of Biomarkers in the Assessment of Aquatic Ecosystem Health. Access the article in the July 2014 issue of IEAM. Just go to ctacjournals.org. I'm Jenny Shaw, and thank you for listening to the IEAM Podcast.